today, we have a new and in-depth conversation with Dr. Gerald Horn. We speak with him about the latest in the murder of Malcolm X, the trials going on now in the United States that reflect the state of race relations in the United States, from Charlottesville to Kyle Rittenhouse to Amand Arbery, and reparatory justice. What does the global north owe to the global south and to communities that are the south within the north, U.S.-China relations, and much more? We live in a global world. We're all interrelated, so on Sojourn the Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandari. The House of Representatives has approved the Build Back Better legislation of social and climate programs. Every Democrat but one voted for it. No Republicans did. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy delayed passage last night when he launched an eight-and-a-half-hour speech against the measure, setting a new record for the length of a House speech. You know, when I look at this bill, it angers me. We are so better than this. You are spending so much money. Never before we spent less defeating Hitler, Mussolini, and Japan than you're spending tonight. We spent less, but it cost us lives. And you're celebrating it. McCarthy's lengthy speech pushed the final vote to this morning, but couldn't change the outcome. The 2,100-page bill's initiatives include bolstering child care assistance, creating free preschool, curbing seniors' prescription drug costs, and beefing up efforts to slow climate change. Also included are tax credits to spur clean energy development, child care assistance, and extended tax breaks for millions of families with children, lower-earning workers, and people buying private health insurance. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi closed debate on the $1.85 trillion bill, describing it as historic. That is historic, transformative, and larger than anything we have ever done before. We are building back better. If you are a parent, a senior, a child, a worker, if you are an American, this bill, this bill's for you. Pelosi contrasted the legislation to the $2 trillion Republican tax cut approved under former President Trump, the majority of whose benefits flowed to corporations and the wealthy. Passage in the House sends the legislation to an uncertain future in the Senate. Democratic Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has promised a vote before Christmas. The Senate is stalled on moving forward on a final vote on the whopping $778 billion military spending policy bill. The bill's being held up not because of its cost, but because Republicans wanted to add amendments on issues like limiting imports of goods produced in China by forced labor and barring payments to migrants who were separated from their children at the border. Massachusetts Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren took aim at the record spending for the military, more than under former President Trump, and even more than the Biden administration asked for. She contrasted the glide path for military spending to the hard slog in passing the social programs in the Build Back Better legislation. Congress keeps the spigot of cash wide open 
so long as it's for defense. Meanwhile, do you know how much money the President's Build Back Better plan will cost on average each year if Congress passes it? $175 billion. That is about one-fifth the size of this defense bill. When we want to make investments that directly benefit people across this country, we're told that costs too much or that's socialism. But when we spend nearly five times that amount of money in the defense bill, it is just a shrug of the shoulders. Defense attorneys for the three men accused of killing black jogger Ahmad Arbery rested their case after calling a total of seven witnesses. Those who testified included Travis McMichael, who fatally shot Arbery. Six neighbors testified about their concerns regarding crime in the neighborhood. McMichael and his father, Greg, armed themselves and pursued the 25-year-old Arbery in a pickup truck. A neighbor, William Roddy Bryan, joined the chase in his own truck and recorded cell phone video. All the defendants are white. Eleven of the 12 jurors are white as well. By the end of the day, the director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention may recommend the use of booster vaccines for all adults. An advisory committee to the CDC meets this morning. Even before that this morning, the Food and Drug Administration recommended booster doses of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. At least 17 states led by California have recommended all adults receive a booster if they're at least six months out from their two-dose Moderna or Pfizer vaccines or two months after their J&J inoculation. The focus on boosters comes as a surge in COVID-19 cases in the upper Midwest has some Michigan schools keeping students at home ahead of Thanksgiving. In Minnesota, the military is sending medical teams to relieve hospital staffs overwhelmed by patients. The World Health Organization has in vain urged wealthy nations to hold off on booster doses for their general populations, while many poor countries still lack the doses to give their people a first shot. Austria's chancellor has ordered his country into a full national lockdown beginning Monday to contain a fourth wave of coronavirus cases. I'm Eileen Alfandari for Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. And uh, today we are very fortunate, despite our technical difficulties here, to have Dr. Gerald Horn with us. We're doing an in-depth one-hour special with Dr. Horn. We haven't done that in a while, so this is uh, brand new information. And uh, Dr. Horn, let me welcome you, and then I'll introduce the first uh, section that we'll be discussing, the latest about the assassination of Malcolm X. So uh, Dr. Gerald Horn is the Morris Professor of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. He's written more than 30 books. His most recently published book is The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. He is also the author of The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. He is an, uh, an award-winning author, and uh, Dr. Horn, you were also granted Ida B. Wells in Czech and, and to jump award for outstanding scholarship and leadership in Africana studies, uh, along with the latest American Book Award that you have won. So, Dr. Horn, thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. 
Okay, so um, uh, just to refresh our memory here for our listeners, on February 19, 1965, Malcolm X told interviewer Gordon Parks uh, that that he was being undermined. On February 21st, 1965, he was preparing to address the Organization of African American Unity in Manhattan's Audubon Ballroom in Harlem when someone in the 400-person audience yelled, get your hand out of my pocket. As Malcolm X and his bodyguards tried to stop the disruption, a man rushed forward and shot him once in the chest with a sawed-off shotgun, and then two other men ran, ran to the stage firing uh, semi-automatic handguns, and Malcolm X sadly was pronounced dead at 3.30 uh, p.m. shortly after he arrived at Columbia Presbyterian Hospital. Now, this, all of this took place in front of his family. Let's go to a clip now um, from BBC about this latest uh, Breaking news, not a surprise to some of us, but certainly a surprise to many around the nation and around the world. Let's go to that clip now. A senior U.S. prosecutor says two men uh, convicted of the murder in 1965 of the American civil rights leader Malcolm X are to have their convictions quashed. The Manhattan District Attorney, said Mohammed A. Aziz and Khalil Islam, uh, who spent decades in prison for the killing, did not get the justice they deserved. Arun Aingar reports. And the fire hit the window and it woke up my second oldest baby. Malcolm X, a charismatic advocate for black empowerment, he was 39 when he was killed, shot dead in a New York City ballroom in front of his family. He was the public face of the Nation of Islam. Muhammad al-Aziz and Khalil Islam, along with a third man, Thomas Hagen, were convicted of murder and sentenced to life in prison. Islam died in 2009. Now, prosecutor Cyrus Vance says the FBI and police withheld information that could have led to the acquittal of Aziz and Islam. The Netflix documentary series Who Killed Malcolm X brought to light some of this evidence. This evidence was hiding in plain sight all these years, for decades. Uh, much of what we revealed in the documentary was known. Um, much of it was public, particularly the Manning Marable biography, Life of Reinvention. Um, even the autobiography of Malcolm X, you know, had kernels of, of, of evidence. Um, and the FBI had a treasure trove of documents that we were able to um, uncover through the Freedom of Information Act that led us down this, this path. Prosecutor Vance has also tweeted that more information is likely to be revealed. He's apologised on behalf of the law enforcement agencies to the families of Aziz and Islam. Earlier this year, Malcolm X's daughters added their voices to calls to reopen the investigation in the light of new evidence. It's a cause Malcolm X himself might have strongly argued for. Aruna Iyengar, BBC News. You know, Dr. Horn, um, I'm looking at an article that says the exoneration of uh, these two raises even more questions around the assassination of Malcolm X. And uh, clearly there was no um, physical evidence uh, that connected uh, Mr. Aziz or Mr. Islam uh, to the assassination. They spent uh, so, so much time in prison, and meanwhile, the man who did confess 
um, he went by the name of uh, Thomas Hagen or Talmadge Hare, had early said that the other two were not part of it and others were. And Manning Maribel, uh, the late Manning Maribel, in his book about Malcolm X, he certainly alluded to it. And as you heard in the clip, it took this uh, Netflix uh, documentary uh, to get uh, Cyrus Vance and, uh, you know, to open uh, this investigation. But many, for many years, have been clamoring for an investigation. And even now, um, Gerald Horn, there's still a lot more that I certainly believe still needs to come out, as do many people. Your thoughts? on all of this, including the FBI agents who were in the room that Malcolm was assassinated. Well, you and the clip are correct to point to the fact that Manny Marable in his Pulitzer Prize winning biography of Malcolm X raised serious and searching questions as to whether or not the real culprits uh, had been captured and that the men who have just been released were likely innocent. I should also mention another Pulitzer Prize winning book, this one out in the last year or so by the late New York Newsday reporter uh, Les Payne, which raised the same question. I guess one lesson uh, from this episode is the power of film, because these books notwithstanding, <laughs> it took a Netflix film, Who Killed Malcolm X? to get investigators, particularly in Manhattan in the district attorney's office, uh, led by Cyrus Vance, to get off their duffs and begin a serious investigation. I say begin a serious investigation because the trail has grown cold. This assassination took place in 1965. Since then, many witnesses have died. Since then, apparently evidence has been lost, including one of the weapons that was used in the assassination. Serious questions remain, however, and it seems to me they uh, can be put in three buckets. Uh, one is concerning the role of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI, under the late director, J. Edgar Hoover, who apparently did not reveal evidence to the prosecution about agents of his uh, agency who had penetrated to the highest levels of Malcolm X's organization and retinue. Secondly, one could say the same thing about the New York Police Department. We know that there was an NYPD agent in the front row who was a witness to the assassination. Of course, he was not known as a NYPD agent. He was seen as a reliable member of the uh, Malcolm X entourage, he apparently was able to look the assassins in the face. And yet uh, he was not necessarily interrogated or brought to bear with regard to these men who were unjustly convicted. And then finally, of course, there is the role of the organization that Malcolm X had broken from, circa 1963, circa 1964, speaking of the Nation of Islam, who were not very happy about some of the charges that Malcolm had made about the leadership of the Nation of Islam. And it's apparent 
that one of the men who we can point the finger of accusation at, per the Marable biography, the Les Payne biography, and the Netflix movie, a man once known as William Bradley, who appears, at least visually, in the Netflix movie, and of course had ties to the Nation of Islam, and interestingly enough, had ties to the New Jersey Democratic Party establishment. Uh, you might recall from the Netflix movie that Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey uh, speaks fondly of Mr. Bradley, who apparently was a community leader of sorts uh, in New Jersey. So many questions are lingering, many questions remain, but the title of the Netflix movie, Who Killed Malcolm X, that question may never be answered authoritatively. Yeah, and you know, Dr. Horn, I mean, there's, you know, a lot of people are concerned about the charges that Malcolm made before he was killed when he said they're members of the nations of, of the nation of Islam threatening me that are after me, his homeless firebombs, et cetera, because um, understandably, a lot of uh, black people are protective of movements within the black community, including the nation of, of Islam, including Minister Farrakhan and other higher ups in the nation of Islam. And there are others who believe that uh, people were being used, that the, the FBI also, as part of their whole COINTELPRO operation, uh, were part of orchestrating a lot of this. Now, so Cyrus Vance, you know, he's saying, well, in their, you know, the investigation they did, they have not uncovered that there was some plot uh, by the FBI to assassinate uh, Malcolm X. But, you know, to me, that really doesn't hold a smell test. I mean, clearly, it seems as though a number of people who were involved with this um, Nation of Islam mosque in New Jersey um, played some role in it, including the the uh, the man that you just mentioned, Mister um, Bradley, and who then became somewhat of a community. The late he's passed away now, as many people have passed away. So you're right; it does beg the question of will we ever really know? Because there's been so much redacted, and the idea that the shotgun that was used somehow is lost. How could that have happened? I mean, Malcolm had 21 bullets in him, you know what I mean, in, in, in a packed ballroom, and, and not one, but likely more than one FBI uh, agent in the room at the time, and the FBI uh, withholding um, evidence that they had and not sharing it with the investigative team at the time in uh, Manhattan. So just some, some thoughts on this, and, and also your thoughts on why you think Malcolm became such a threat, because we know that the FBI, Jed Hoover, he was very concerned about the possibility of a quote-unquote black messiah, and it seemed as though when Malcolm was preaching separatism, right, um, he was less of a threat. But then he, he went to Mecca and he came back and he started building his organization. He became an internationalist visiting uh, Africa, saying that he'll work with anybody who wants to uh, fight for freedom while maintaining his base of black autonomy 
that they saw the possibility that he could really bring people together and become um, what they saw as a threat to the status quo, uh, Dr. Horn. Well, certainly with regard to the ongoing investigation, I think we need to pressure the FBI to release more documents. And with regard to the documents that they have released, they have been redacted. That is to say, oftentimes entire paragraphs have been blotted out. We need Congress to pressure the FBI to not only release more documents, but to remove uh, those redactions, which prevent a fuller comprehension of what went on in Manhattan in February 1965 when Malcolm X was killed. And plus, we also know that this killing of Malcolm X is, in some ways is similar to other killings of the tumultuous 1960s. Recall the recently released movie Judas and the Black Messiah, which recounts the slaying in his bed of Black Panther Party leader Fred Hampton on December 4th, 1969. Uh, we know that once again, agents of the state had penetrated to the highest level of the Fred Hampton entourage and had uh, assisted the authorities in terms of this uh, Chicago police slaying on December 4th, 1969. We also have the unfortunate example of the killing of Martin Luther King. Recall that about a decade or so after the King killing in 1968, Congressman Lewis Stokes of Cleveland and the Congressional Black Caucus did a congressional investigation that raised very serious and serious questions, very serious and searching questions about the role of the state in the King assassination and suggested that James Earl Ray, who was fingered for the killing, was probably part of a larger conspiracy. Recall that there are still lingering questions as to how James Earl Ray was able to get out of the United States, apparently was headed to the minority state, the white racist state of Rhodesia, uh, before he was captured. And I should also mention, with regard to Malcolm X, that in the year before his assassination, he had not only gone to Mecca, he had, of course, gone to Africa and uh, had toured Africa. And what's interesting about that is that uh, while he was in Africa, he apparently was subjected to some sort of dirty tricks. Uh, apparently, he was subjected to food poisoning. Uh, there is a notorious U.S. agent, Black American, by the name of Leo Millis, M-I-L-A-S, who was popping up repeatedly uh, as Malcolm X was traveling throughout Africa. In fact, uh, there is evidence for any who are interested in tracking this down in my book, White Supremacy Confronted, which deals with the U.S. role in backing minority regimes, including apartheid, up to Nelson Mandela's election in 1994. Uh, we need records released about Leo Millis because that may also point to the complicity, complicity not only of the NYPD and the FBI, but perhaps of the Central Intelligence Agency as well. Yeah, and, and on um, February uh, 20th, uh, 2021, a day before the 56th anniversary of Malcolm X's assassination, members of his family publicized a letter written by a deceased uh, police officer saying that the New York Police Department and FBI orchestrated his murder. Now, as you say, we may never know. 
the letter was attributed to a former undercover uh, NYPD officer named Raymond Wood. And his letter stated that he had been pressured by his superiors in NYPD to lure two members of Malcolm X's security team into committing crimes that resulted in their arrest just days before the fatal uh, shooting. So, you know, they weren't around, but there were some others who, who were. And to people who are just joining us who may not uh, know the news yet, on Thursday, November uh, 19th, um, two men convicted of the assassination of Malcolm X were exonerated in a court hearing. Uh, New York uh, County Supreme Court Administrative uh, Judge Ellen uh, Biden granted the motion to vacate the convictions of Muhammad A. Aziz and the late Khalil Islam. And for people who are a little not quite following the names, they were formerly known as Norman Street X Butler and Thomas 15 X. So, Gerald, we have some new information, but it, it seems to me as though it, it answers some questions, but in so many ways it raises more questions than it actually uh, answers. And, and clearly the powers that be considered uh, Malcolm X as they considered uh, Chairman Fred Hampton, whom they also assassinated, um, to be threats to the status quo and the possibility of building a mass movement uh, that they saw as a threat to the status quo. Uh, Dr. Horn, what we're going to do, we're just going to take a short break now, and when we return, we'll be talking about this whole history of vigilantism in the United States, the trials that are going on now, uh, Charlottesville, uh, the Rittenhouse trial. Amon Aubrey trial and putting that also in a historic context. And we're also going to be on the international uh, scene talking a bit about the U.S.-China relations. So stay with us. You won't want to miss anything that Dr. Gerald Horn has to say. Okay. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Don't catch you slipping now. Look what I'm whipping now. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Don't catch you slipping now. What I'm whipping up. This is America. Don't got you slipping up. Look how I'm living up. Police be tripping up. Yeah, this is America. Guns in my area. I got the strap. I gotta carry him. This is Mark Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. And we're doing a one hour index special with Dr. Gerald Horn and a, a wide ranging. Uh, series of up topics. If you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us on Facebook, our handle on Instagram and Twitter at So True Radio. And we are nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And today I'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Des Moines, Iowa, in Des Moines, Iowa, and internationally. Let's see, we have a list here. Right, let's give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Sweden. Well, who would have thought, but yes, in Sweden. And our guest is Dr. Gerald Horn. And what we're going to do now is to go into a, a bit in depth about this whole history of vigilantism in the United States, but also these trials that are going on now that are really showing the manifestation of that in the United States today. Uh, let's go to a clip 
I want to play this clip on what happened in, in Charlottesville, where Heather Heyer was killed and a number of protesters injured uh, by some white supremacists who were uh, protesting there, because I think it really, in a lot of ways, shows clearly the context of the rest of what's happening with these other trials and race relations as they stand in the United States. Let's go to that clip now. A civil trial for organizers behind the 2017 Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, is in its fourth week. Four years ago, several right-wing groups marched through the streets of Charlottesville, protesting the removal of several Confederate monuments. Many carried tiki torches and violently clashed with counter-protesters. One person was killed and several others were hurt when a driver plowed his car into a crowd of counter-protesters. Ten plaintiffs are suing the organizers. They claim rioters violated their civil rights and caused them physical and emotional injuries during the demonstration. Defendants have argued there was no conspiracy leading up to the rally. They also say they had a First Amendment right to protest. Homeland Security and Justice reporter Nicole Skanga joins me now with more. Uh, Nicole, thanks very much for being with us. So the plaintiff's attorneys have wrapped up their presentation of evidence. How are they attempting to depict an intentional planning of violence by the defendants ahead of that 2017 rally? Well, Elaine, attorneys for the plaintiffs have really woven together a series of messages, social media posts, even podcasts to make their case for what is being called conspiracy to commit racially motivated violence during that deadly August weekend. And in some of these messages, participants describe the use of flagpole shields, even cars as weapons. Rally organizers and known white supremacists Jason Kessler and Richard Spencer, both defendants here, exchange messages about raising an army and the cracking of skulls if it comes to it. And plaintiffs' attorneys have presented evidence showing defendants bragging about violence, including video of Christopher Cantwell, one of the defendants here, a known neo-Nazi podcaster, displaying several guns that he brought with him to the rally. Earlier this week, attorneys even arguing that defendants instructed participants at the rally to mislead law enforcement, with Jason Kessler telling followers in a Facebook message, if police ask how many people you have coming, don't tell them. And Kessler went on to say he believed efforts would be thwarted if law enforcement thought more than 400 people were expected, even though organizers privately touted a number around 800 to 1,000 people. Now, there are two dozen defendants here, including some of the country's most notorious white supremacists and leaders of long-established hate groups. But we also shouldn't lose sight of the plaintiffs, nine current or former Charlottesville residents, including several former University of Virginia students who say they've endured both physical and emotional trauma, injuries as a result of the rally, and of course that torch-lit march you might remember uh, you referenced earlier on UVA's campus the night before. Well, Nicole, how are some of the defendants using the trial to further spread hateful messages? Elaine, even though some of the defendants have been kicked off social media platforms like Facebook, some have found a new stage to amplify their racist views, and that is the trial itself. Hundreds of public citizens, journalists, plain old spectators dial in every day. I'm one of them. And, you know, the defendants radio, uh, YouTube shows during the trial to give their take and purport their views. Up until a few days ago, defendant Jason Kessler had actually been messaging his followers from the courtroom in real time in a large group chat during the trial. Defendant 
Christopher Cantwell, who's representing himself, name-checked Hitler, used several racial slurs, and condemned Antifa activists within the first few minutes of his opening argument. And since in several instances defendants have participated in what's called doxing, publicly uncovering personal information about private citizens as they've cross-examined plaintiffs on the stand, it's something legal experts have called a really dangerous precedent. Well, how could this verdict implicate former President Trump, Steve Bannon, Rudy Giuliani, and others who've been accused of inspiring violence ahead of the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol? So, Elaine, the civil rights organization Integrity First for America that's backing the nine plaintiffs here, they're actually using a 150-year-old statute called the Ku Klux Klan Act to try to hold defendants accountable here. And it was enacted back in 1871 and designed to protect African Americans following racial violence and terrorism in the South. But the Reconstruction-era law still has real utility today, and it could implicate former President Trump, his allies Steve Bannon, Rudy Giuliani, and others who have also been accused of inspiring violence, including racially motivated violence ahead of the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. In fact, Capitol Police and lawmakers are actually relying on the very same statute to bring to bear their own civil lawsuits following January 6th. Elaine, I asked the executive director of Integrity First for America, Amy Spitalnik, about this when the trial first kicked off, and she called it sad that the KKK Act is having such a resurgence in the year of 2021. She said it's just one indication that Violent extremism and white supremacy is also having a resurgence, but she said, you know, it's a reminder that it's time to take action for the group. You know, Dr. Gerald it's interesting, uh, you know, right at the end there where they're talking about the 1871 uh, Ku Klux Klan Act, but also interestingly enough, saying that it's possible that that act could be used against the likes of, of Trump uh, Giuliani and his ilk. We know that the uh, jury begins deliberations in that trial uh, going on in, in Charlottesville today involving those uh, white supremacists that organized uh, that rally in Charlottesville. But Dr. Horn, I played that clip because it really does set the stage, I think, for looking at what is happening with the other trials, with the Rittenhouse uh, trial, with Armand uh, Aubrey's uh, trial where race and racism and a big role in it, and the rise of militias across the United States, from Wisconsin to Texas, um, also guards in, in, in Florida prisons, and I imagine in, in other prisons that are all part of this ideology. So uh, Dr. Horn, breaking that down a bit for us, I mean, the idea that a law from 1871 still has to be used today, Dr. Horn. Well, I think it's appropriate for this law from the Reconstruction era, the post-1865 era, when black people were escaping slavery and seeking to be elected to office. However, their efforts were drowned in a tidal wave of blood, spearheaded by the terrorists known as the Ku Klux Klan. And at that particular moment in history, the Ku Klux Klan was fundamentally the armed wing of the Democratic Party. Fast forward to 2021, and you see once again that these Klan-like elements are in motion, but now they're in a political and electoral coalition with the Republican Party. We say this because if you look at what's happened on January 6, 2021, with the attempt 
to prevent Donald Trump from leaving office, we know about the participation of these so-called alt-right formations, such as the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, etc. We know that there were many officers of the law, uh, police officers, uh, so-called uh, retired military veterans, etc., who were disproportionately represented on January 6th. We also know about this movement that's gathering steam as we speak of so-called constitutional sheriffs. These are officers of the law who are sworn to ignore laws or enforcing laws they deem on their own to be improper or unconstitutional. Uh, these include all manner of laws, but of course the uh, vaccine mandates are certainly within the crosshairs. Now, with regard to these trials that are going on, uh, what's remarkable there, particularly about Charlottesville, it's once again the overlap between the establishment right wing and the so-called fringe right wing. For example, in August 2017 in Charlottesville, the Klansmen and the neo-Nazis were marching under the slogan of so-called replacement theory. They were chanting, Jews will not replace us. This replacement theory has been duplicated and replicated on Fox News by Tucker Carlson, their chief spokesperson and commentator and pundit. And this idea is that the Democrats are somehow trying to transform the United States demographically by turning a blind eye, as the Republicans would argue, uh, to people crossing the border and then recruiting these people crossing the border into an electoral block, a voting block, that then will somehow be used to replace the white working class and the white middle class. That is what is at stake with regard to the Charlottesville case, which once again uh, helps to re represent and reflect this devilish, diabolical alliance uh, between these neo-Nazi forces and the Republican Party. Now, there is a ray of sunshine with regard to one of these trials. I'm thinking of the trial of Ahmed Arbery in Georgia, which is taking place as we speak. Recall that he was the young black jogger who was chased down and killed vigilante style by latter-day lynchers. The good news is that Adam Wainwright, who happens to be white, He's a top athlete. He's a baseball pitcher for the St. Louis Cardinals baseball team. He hails from Brunswick, Georgia. He came out yesterday in alignment and in solidarity with the black pastors who, you recall, were demonized by the defense lawyers uh, who said that they should not be allowed to sit in the, in the courtroom, speaking of uh, Reverend Al Sharpton, Reverend Jesse Jackson, Reverend William Barber, at all. It's very important that this local hero stood in solidarity uh, with the Arbery family, because even though, understandably, we make quite a to-do about Colin Kaepernick and other black athletes, there's been an eerie silence uh, from uh, many white athletes with regard to all of these pressing issues. And Adam Wainwright uh, coming uh, to the forefront is very significant and very important. Now, with regard to the trial in Kenosha, Wisconsin of Kyle Rittenhouse, the teenage assassin who killed people in the wake of demonstrations protesting the police wounding severely of Jacob Blake, a black American man, also captured on tape, by the way, as was the Arbery slaying. 
What's interesting there is that the jury has been deliberating now for about 23 hours. It's difficult to interpret that. Uh, the most positive interpretation is, is that they're being painstaking as they march towards the conviction, although you never can be sure, certainly in light of the fact that the judge has been tipping the scales in favor of the defendant is not reassuring in the least. Yeah, absolutely not. And um, Dr. Horn, we really don't know what it all means. I mean, the judge, you know, in that uh, case, um, you know, as you say, um, seemingly on the side of uh, Kyle. And I was interested to also see some of the language, the coded language that these white supremacists um, are using, because uh, they've taken off the sheets, right? And they're saying, well, we don't use, uh, you know, uh, swastikas. Yeah, that, that's kind of like the old days, but we, we use more coded language and things like the number 1488, which refer to 14 words, which is a popular white supremacist uh, slogan. Um, and, of course, H being the eighth letter of the alphabet, and that refers to that sign. I don't want to repeat here. Happened to Hitler. And then there's the phrase, Rahoa, which sounds like, what are they talking about? doesn't even make sense. But that stands for racial holy war. And also uh, uh, another thing that they do, did you see Kyle? And that actually is a play on words of the uh, Nazi salute. So Dr. Horn, it just seems to me as though all of this is a thread running through not only all of these uh, trials, uh, the three, the Charlottesville, uh, Rittenhouse, and Ahman Arbery, but also, as you say, what happened on January 6th, and um, potentially what we may be facing in, in 2024. And Dr. Moore, before we go on to talk a bit about the international stuff, in, in particular, uh, the U.S. tensions between the U.S. and China, you know, it does seem to be a very, very dangerous time right now, and uh, people very, very worried about if we're already not in a, a state of fascism, of quickly moving in that direction. Uh, just give us your thought on that, and then we'll move on to the international. That's well, important. I think it's striking what you are just referencing, all of these uh, obscure acronyms and abbreviations. It points to a number of very troubling and disturbing factors. One, we already know about the penetration to the highest level of the Republican Party of the QAnon theorists. Uh, these are the folks such as Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia, Congresswoman Laura Boebert of Colorado, who have these fantastic, uh, meaning fantasies, conspiracy theories about Democrats being uh, Satanist uh, pedophiles, for example. Recall that a man who was inspired by QAnon actually drove to Washington, D.C. and attacked a pizza shop, which he thought housed these Satanist pedophiles. So this has to be taken quite seriously. And I think for those of us who are looking to historical analogies with regard to uh, fascism, particularly in the 1930s, we recognize that in the 1930s, the fascists 
were not only on a path of irrationality, they were also dabbling in the occult. Uh, many of them consider themselves to be highly religious, just like the latter-day fascists in the United States consider themselves to be highly religious. And what's remarkable as well is that on the one hand, they're dabbling in these conspiracy theorists. For example, here in the state of Texas, we were told that uh, John F. Kennedy Jr., uh, who we know died in a plane crash some years ago, was going to uh, reemerge suddenly uh, in North Texas, believe it or not. Of course, he did not reemerge, but that did not dampen the conspiracy theory. So at the same time that they're trafficking, that is to say the ultra-right and conspiracy theorists, they're trying to turn the rest of us into coincidence theorists. What I mean by that is we're not supposed to draw a connection between Jacob Blake and Ahmed Arbery and Michael Brown and Eric Garner and Sandra Bland. We're not supposed to talk about systemic racism giving rise to these kinds of slings because that's supposedly critical race theory, which has been outlawed in a number of states. That is to say that we can only speak of all of these incidents as coincidence, whereas the right wing is able to dabble in the most absurd conspiracy theorists. There's something wrong with that picture. And I think also I would be remiss if I failed to mention, as we be, uh, get ready to segue into global events, that the U.S. left made some serious miscalculations as well. The U.S. left historically has spoken of what they see as the deep democratic traditions of the United States of America, which is remarkable when you consider it took the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which was uh, preceded by bloodiness uh, all over the country just to get the right to vote for a number of black citizens. And yet, supposedly, we have these deep democratic traditions. Obviously, that was a misguided miscalculation. And I'm afraid to say that in 2021 and 2022, uh, chickens may come home to roost to cite the fabled phrase of the aforementioned Malcolm X. Right. And um, on that note, just a, a couple of, of pieces of uh, relatively good news there. Well, good news for Julius Jones, who was the black man um, in Oklahoma who was on death row and so many people rose up asking uh, the governor uh, not to move ahead with his killing, uh, state killing of uh, Julius Jones. And in fact, they have had some success in that. So that has been great. You know, his case uh, has a lot of widespread attention, including a documentary called uh, The Last Defense. But students in Oklahoma, you know, were walking out, high school students, university students. It was really a massive uh, movement not to kill this man. And, and then just this morning, despite the efforts of Republican uh, leader of the House, Kevin McCarthy, who gave a speech of over eight hours uh, yesterday trying to blot a vote on President Biden's Build Back Better plan that has the child tax credits and, um, uh, uh, you know, resources uh, for home care workers and other caregivers care and a whole set of other things that passed this morning. So just wanted to report that. Uh, Dr. Horn, now uh, moving on to this uh, summit that happened between uh, the chief of uh, China and President Biden on Monday, November 18th. 
uh, it's very not happened, but uh, no breakthroughs, but a joint statement. And I, I wonder if you want to give uh, your thoughts on this, you know, the United States doing this delicate uh, balance with China that is growing as an economic, growing as the military, and the United States making a lot about the human rights abuses attributed to the worry that people of Taiwanese descent uh, have in terms of what China might do in relation to Taiwan, given the crackdown that happened in Hong Kong. And one has to wonder if uh, China and President Xi, on the other hand, are raising some of the human rights abuses that we've just been talking about here in the United States. But your thoughts on, on the relations and how you saw the summit, Dr. Horn. Well, obviously, relations between the United States and China are at a very dangerous point. You may recall that in the summit between the leaders of Mexico, Canada, and the United States, just at the White House in the last 24 hours, in an offhanded fashion, uh, Mr. Biden mentioned that the United States may officially boycott the Winter Olympics, which are slated to jump off in China within a few months. Now, this will not involve keeping U.S. athletes away. It will mean there will be no official U.S. delegation. I don't think that that will be a step forward in terms of improving the relationship, which is obviously headed towards a precipitous decline. Uh, you may also recall that in the best-selling book by Washington Post reporter Bob Woodward and Robert Costa of the Washington Post, Carol, about the last days of the Trump regime, the book opens with a frightening scene of Mr. Trump supposedly recommending a military strike against China so that he could declare a state of emergency and hang on to power. Uh, therein, you also see the close connection between the domestic and the global, that is to say, manufacturing an international crisis to hold on to power domestically. Uh, obviously, uh, that did not go down very well in China. And then just a few weeks ago, you had the chief U.S. military officer, Mark Milley, uh, who suggested that the United States may have reached the so-called Sputnik moment, referring to Moscow launching a satellite in outer space in 1957, uh, which sent chills of apprehension coursing down the spine of leaders in Washington. Uh, China supposedly had just launched the so-called hypersonic missile which was thought to be able to evade uh, U.S. Uh, anti-ballistic uh, uh, missile defenses. And so this relation is heading south, but I think it's important for the audience to understand how we got to this point. And we got to this point as a result of a deal that was brokered a half century ago between the U.S. and Chinese leaderships on an anti-Soviet basis, whereby in return for China deepening its hostility to the then Soviet Union, the United States would then direct massive foreign direct investment into China. Uh, that has created this juggernaut uh, in China, uh, which is leading the world in terms of artificial intelligence, which may be the key technology of the future, also leading the world in terms of green energy, particularly solar energy. And so now the United States wants to reverse that deal brokered a half century ago up to and including a military assault on China. And I should also say with regard to uh, the human rights question in China, 
uh, one of the burning issues today is what has happened to the Chinese tennis player, Pang Shui, who charged a leader of the Chinese Communist Party with various sexual indiscretions. Uh, she has not appeared in public of late. That has caused a flurry of outcry from tennis giants such as Serena Williams, Naomi Osaka, not to mention uh, other uh, tennis champions such as Billie Jean King. And that, too, will be an issue going forward when the United States decides if and when it will boycott the Winter Olympics in China. Right. And, and also, thank you for that, Dr. Horn. On the international front, just a, 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 few, a couple of minutes left, actually about a minute and a half, I wondered if you wanted to comment on the global south or making now countries of the global north to say, hey, you all got to pay up for all of what we need to do to stop the destruction of the environment in our areas when it is the global north uh, doing most of the polluting. And similarly, indigenous lands here in the United States and also south of the border and black communities such as Kansas Alley down in Louisiana. Uh, just a quick thought on, on this kind of reparatory justice when it comes to the environment. Uh, Dr. Horn, final thoughts. Well, that kind of justice is what we need right now to save this small planet on which we reside. I should also mention that this idea of climate reparations should be taken up and adapted and adopted by the reparations movement in the United States of America. That is to say reparations to the descendants of the enslaved in North America, because joining with the climate reparations movement can only put wind in their sails. And I should also mention as well that given all of this hysteria about refugees, recall what has been happening until late on the border between Belarus and Poland with regard to refugees, what's been happening on the Texas-Mexico border with regard to yeah. refugees. Well, we have not seen anything compared to what might happen as the seas continue to rise and as the climate continues to strike back which will drive people from small island states, will drive people from Africa northward, perhaps into Europe. So it seems to me that the wisest course going forward is precisely climate reparation. Absolutely. On that note, Dr. Horn, the time just flew. Thank you so very much for joining us today. Um, just fascinating. Dr. Horn, but we are out of time, so I've got to get out of here. Today's show produced by me. Uh, that's Morgan Let me thank uh, Mark Maxwell for coming in and helping us out with our engineer crisis uh, this morning. Thank you, Mark. Our assistant producer, Romero uh, Funes. You all please remember to stay safe. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Yeah.